My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here, and I get the privilege this morning of, of leading us in the reading and teaching of God's Word. So as we begin that this morning, I want to share with you a bit of a story um, that I was emailed late last week, and I've been sitting on all week as I've been thinking about what God has for us this morning, and I just kind of want to let it set us up a bit, and then I'll explain what we're doing. So I got this story, and it's about a pastor in Central Asia, and we'll just say Central Asia, we won't say the country, and for the sake of the story, we're going to call him Reza. That's not his name, but that's what we're going to call him, um, and I want to read this to you, and we'll, we'll go from there. You must realize what you're putting at risk when you do ministry inside my country. Reza shared this with me while sitting down in the quiet atmosphere of our agreed-upon meeting place. It's not a joke, he said. It's not a game. It's your family at risk. It's a matter of life and death. One morning about eight years ago, Reza had to pay the price for his passion. Reza's wife had already left for work and Reza was taking a shower. It was around seven o'clock when they knocked at the door. My teenage son, he said, opened the door, and when he saw that it was the authorities, he was afraid, but he knew he had to let them enter. Reza's words began to come to me at a calm pace as he began to share what happened next. They took me to a clinic for examination, and they shaved my head, and they gave me my blue and white prison uniform. Then they blindfolded me, and they pushed me into a car that was waiting outside. It was then that Reza said he realized that he was being sent to one of his country's most infamous prisons. There was no Bible in prison for Reza, and in his solitary cell, there was no one for him to share his faith with. But Reza had memorized a majority of the Bible. I was in prayer nearly the entire time, Reza said. Reza went through valleys so deep that he sometimes wondered if he would survive his experience. He remembered and recounted to me one night in particular the night the guards beat up his neighbor. He said, it made me think, what if I'm next? What if they beat me so severely that they actually kill me? And I want you to hear what he says next. I've done this three times this morning and it still doesn't get any easier. He said, I wondered, what would they do? What if they beat me so hard they kill me? And then Reza said, it was actually a time of repentance, really. It was a time of repentance, really. Reza continued to look at me with a very serious look in his eyes. Sitting there in that cell, feeling so completely naked, I realized how much I had been dependent on worldly things. In the deepest of my misery, I began to see the core of my faith. I realized that the only capital I had left was the one alive within me. I only had Jesus, and this was all that had ever been truly important. Story goes on, he would suffer in prison. He would be beaten and tortured in prison. But unlike so many others who are put in that prison for proclaiming their faith in Jesus, Reza would be released He'd be reunited with his wife and, and with his son. And to this day, he leads an underground church in his Central Asian country and trains others to begin 
churches in his Central Asian country. And as I read the story, I was thinking about the story, one of the primary things that just kept coming back to my mind and, and really challenging my heart was simply this. Where does the reservoir to live a life like that actually come from? I mean, where, where does the capacity to sit in a solitary cell for your faith, listening to your imprisoners beat your neighbor so severely, you, you wonder if they're going to beat you to the point of death, and that become a place of repentance for you. I mean, where does that reservoir come from? The more I thought about it and the more I wrestled with the challenges within my own heart, the more I just began to see that a life like Reza's and the countless lives like Reza's around the world were just a very real demonstration of the ongoing reverberating power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, alive and at work in his people. David Larson, who was a writer at Baylor University for years, he said that the messengers of the gospel, and he was talking in the particular about Jesus' disciples at the point of his death, the messengers of the gospel initiated change, defying the prevalent mindset and lifestyle of an entire continent. We who are Christians right now, today, are the sons and daughters, he said, the children of the resurrection. And I want you to listen to the image that Larson gives. It's, it's kind of what began to move things for me. Larson said, we are the heirs of a spiritual and moral detonation. Those of you 40 and above who, who grew up in the Cold War, Cold War years and the nuclear arms years, you, you've got images of nuclear detonations and the reverberations of such explosions. You, you lived with the thoughts in those things your entire life. Larson says that we're the sons and the daughters of a spiritual and moral detonation that occurred 2,000 plus years ago, but the vitality of which still reverberates today around the world in and through God's people. As I thought about Reza and I thought about what the capacity and the reservoir that it must take to, to live a life like that. And I, I thought about what Larson was talking about, this spiritual and moral detonation that has occurred that continues to reverberate. I, I could not help but think of the Apostle Paul's words to the church in Philippi. I, I want to know Christ. We talk about that here every week. I, I want to know Christ. But he also said, and the power of his resurrection. I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his resurrection. This morning and next week are going to be a, a little different than normal, and, and when I say different than normal, what I mean is that it's our normal fare to take a, a book of the Bible and to slowly work our way through that Bible, thought by thought, verse by verse, seeing what God had inspired in the writers then and what it means even for his people now. And, and we took a year, over a year, to go through the gospel according to Mark. And, and last week in God's providence, he brought us on Resurrection Sunday to the portion of Mark's gospel where he began to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and we we saw what that resurrection meant. 
We saw the public declaration of God for his people through the death and resurrection of his son for our forgiveness and and for our justification. And the more I thought about it, though, I began to wrestle with the reality that for so many of us, and I know for me, for so long in my Christian life and, and really for the daily reality of my Christian life, I often relegate the resurrection to that event in history that secured and demonstrates for me the depth of God's mercy towards me. And it is that. But the resurrection is not just an event in time to be known and remembered. As Larson said, it's a reverberating power, the vitality of which is still alive and at work in the followers of Jesus even today. This morning and next week, I want us to consider the power of the resurrection, the reverberating power of the resurrection in the life of a follower of Jesus. And and in a sense, in my brain, what I'm thinking is, what does the resurrected life look like? And then three weeks, so this week, next week, and the following week, we're going to begin walking through the book of James. Many people will call James wisdom literature for the New Testament. And in my brain, as I was thinking about what God would have us do after Mark, and I, I began to really consider James, I began to think, well, what does the resurrected life look like? What does this reverberating power of the resurrection look like for God's people? And then James, what is wisdom for actually living the resurrection life? So, so that's what's coming. And if you've been here as you've been going through the gospel according to Mark and you're very familiar with us taking a passage and walking through it, it's going to be a little bit different this morning as we'll go to different places in the Bible. But in three weeks, we're going to jump back into James. But for now, I want us to continue considering the reverberating power of the resurrection the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the grave some 2,000 plus years ago for your life and my life now. And the more I've thought about this, and yet this is the third service we've done it this morning, it still doesn't get any easier. And I'm reminded of something one of my, my mentors said years ago. He said, trying to preach about such things of God, really realizing what you're saying and who you're saying about, it will make you feel like you're trying to shove an entire ocean into a raindrop. And I'm acutely aware that trying to talk about the reverberating power of the resurrection for you and I is akin to me trying to shove an ocean into a raindrop. I am struggling for language at times this morning. So as we begin, what we're going to do is pray because the only one capable of shoving an ocean into a raindrop in the time that we have is God himself. We're going to need him to do what only he can do as we, this morning as we look at this. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll consider the force of the resurrection Father, I thank you again for the ways that you have displayed your power even to us today by the breath that we've taken and the moment we woke up and our eyes opened and we realized you had given us a new day. God, I'm asking this morning that, that your power will do what only it can do. And as we hear your words, we won't just see We won't just understand information, but that you'll take what you've said through your word and you'll use it as a transforming power in our hearts today. We want to know you. We want to know your son. We want to know Christ, but God, we want to know the power of his resurrection. So we ask this morning that you would do that miracle that only you can do. 
Help us to know your incredibly great power. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus, for his glory and our joy. Amen. As we begin, I, I, just, I just want to remember a couple of things that we have seen through our walk in Mark, and in particular as we came to Easter Sunday last week, and I'm going to try to say it propositionally as simply as I can, and one is simply this, when we talk about the cross, and like the New Testament writers often do, talking about the cross is a shorthand way of talking about the perfect life Jesus lived in our place, the life of absolute delight and joy and obedience to the Father that he lived for us, and the death that Jesus died that you and I deserve to die. His substitutionary death in our place for our sins. The fact that he really did die, he really was buried. When we talk about the cross, we're talking in shorthand about the work of Jesus in our place for our sins. And so as we saw most specifically leading up to last week, the cross, as we fix our eyes upon it, helps us to see God's eternal declaration of his love towards us. And so if you, I won't even say if, when, today and tomorrow, and the day after that, and the next day, you begin to doubt God's intentions towards you, when you begin to doubt the magnitude of God's mercy for you, you begin to doubt the magnitude of God's love for you, you need to focus your eyes no further than the cross. We've talked about this for weeks leading up to Easter Sunday and then last week. As you fix your eyes upon the cross, you see the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of God's love for you as he demonstrated it in sending his son to die the death you deserve to die. And he demonstrated it in raising him from the grave. But today and tomorrow and the day after that, the day after that, when you begin to doubt God's capacity for actually intervening in your life, when you begin to doubt God's capacity for actually bringing about real change in you, when you begin to doubt God's capacity for dealing with the things that you see occurring in the world around you, you need to look no further than his resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, as we talked most specifically last week, is God's eternal and public declaration of his power. What I want to do first this morning is I want you to just begin to grasp as best you can and as God will work in you the magnitude of his power. I just want you to begin to feel it because there are not going to be words that I can come up with to truly describe it. Listen to Peter Hicks. He's a, he's a British theologian. He, he's writing about the resurrection. And he says that this, the resurrection, it, it is indeed God's power. It's the power that called everything into being that flung the universe into space, that sustains every subnuclear particle in its orbit and every galaxy in its path. The, the power, you gotta just listen, just think about it, that raised Jesus from the dead is the exact same power Hicks is talking about that when there was nothing in existence simply spoke and that which did not exist came into existence. And everything that has been created since is upheld. Every subnuclear particle of the universe is upheld by that same power. You've got to begin to allow your mind and your heart 
to sense the magnitude of the power that we're actually talking about. And so Hicks asked a natural question. Does doing this wear God out? Does he get exhausted from all that effort? No way, Hicks says. When God has exerted his great power in creating and upholding the universe, he has still got tons and tons of power left. But what if too many problems begin to arise? And here's where I can read this and hear his British accent and fall in love with it. Will he have power to sort them all out? I wish I could do it, but I can't. Of course he will. Hicks says he'll have power enough and power to spare, power enough to sort out a million problems, billions of problems, and power to work all things in the universe together for good and still have tons and tons of power left. So Hicks gets to the conclusion for us in that either the resurrection happened or it did not happen. And if it did happen, and that was the argument that we put forward from the Bible last week, if the resurrection did happen, then it demonstrated once and for all that the power of God is greater than any other power. And so Hicks says this for you and I. When you begin to doubt God's ability to sort out any and every problem, look again at the resurrection. Let me try to make it as personal here as I can. Again, I'm going to date myself, and what I'm going to say probably has more implication for those my age and older than those who are younger. But if you're kind of in that 40 and older bracket, you may remember that in the early, early 90s and late 80s, there was a craze that was sweeping the nation, uh, these posters that people were buying and putting up everywhere, that when you looked at them, it looked like a, just a poster full of colorful barcodes. And the whole point of the poster was that you would have to walk up to it and cross your eyes just a certain way and stare at it hard enough. And, and if you were part of the elect and you stared at it just right, an image hidden in that crazy mess of nonsense would begin to come off the poster. There were 3D posters. And there was one Statue of Liberty. There was one of the Twin Towers. There, there were multiple posters out there. But if you were like me and you weren't part of the visually elect, you would stare at those things and cross your eyes until your eyes watered. And everybody would tell you to step away and Wipe your eyes and, and refocus and reset them and then, then stare again. But if you could not see what was hidden in that poster and if that image did not come out to you, you ended up walking away time and time again frustrated and dismayed. And the point that Hicks is trying to make about the magnitude of God's power is simply this. You and I stand on a day in and day out basis faced with any number of circumstances and problems and difficulties that if we focus our eyes upon, we will be left walking away going, how in the world is anyone, even God himself, going to be able to sort that out? There's no way. The more we fix our eyes upon the difficulties and the circumstances and all the nonsense in front of us, we stand the chance of, of really beginning to think maybe there, there isn't a capacity to bring about change in that or in me. But if we would just step away, reset our eyes, fix our eyes now upon not the thing that we're not able to see, but fix our eyes upon the resurrection. 
what we'll begin to see is that God has an inexhaustibly and incomparably great power, capacity that you and I can't even begin to fathom. As we begin to reset our eyes by looking at the resurrection, we see, we see that something has already happened. Something has already been demonstrated and it can't unhappen. As we fix our eyes upon the resurrection, we begin to see that, that God has power for any and every circumstance. You need to feel and begin to sense the magnitude of his power. But there's something more specific that I want us to begin to see this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, turn them over to the book of Ephesians. There's something specific I want us to hear this morning. Man, it, it seems almost like a travesty of grace and justice to not read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Like I, I really feel like I'm doing you a disservice to not read them. But Paul spends 14 verses, but really it's one sentence in the original language because he can never find a place to stop. He just keeps going on and on and on about God's grace for you in Christ. God for you, his mercy for you, his love for you, his grace for you. He, he can't seem to stop talking about God for you. First 14 verses, enjoy it. Verse 15, he's going to transition to tell them what he continues to pray for them. And it's in this prayer that he's praying for them that I, I want you to hear something. Verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, and having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might because he can't just find a word to explain it according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far and above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the one to come and he's put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul can't even seem to come up with a word to describe this, that God's immeasurably great power. I can't get a better word. It's his immeasurably great power. It's his power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's, it's the power that brought life where there was no life, just as in the beginning he brought life where there was no life. It was this immeasurably great power that God put on display in raising Jesus from the dead. And not just that, it's, it's so big you're going to get stuck there. It's the same power that's so great that it sat Christ at his right hand in the heavenlies and put all things under his feet. This is God's immeasurably great power. And then he says four words, which I need you to hear. Four words that I need God to do what only God can do and use these four words to hit you like a freight train. This immeasurably great power, it's toward us who believe. It's not power that existed in the beginning when he spoke and, and flung the universe into being and then he had to plug it in like your phone. 
And then it finally charged up enough that when Jesus had died on the cross and after three days he could exert it again and demonstrate the capacity of his power and raising him from the dead and now it's plugged back into the wall and one day when it charges up, Jesus will return and we'll see it again. No, this is God's incredibly great, inexhaustible power towards you. Some of your Bibles will say, for you. Some of your Bibles will say, in you. All accurate translations of the same preposition because they're trying to communicate the same great reality to you. This is not some indiscriminate power for the sake of power. This is God's incredibly great, undescribable, inexhaustible power that he is wielding for you. And that Paul will tell the church in Rome it's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and it's living in you. You've got to feel the freight of this. The power that created all things that have come into being, that upholds every subnuclear particle by its word, that power that raised Jesus from the dead for your forgiveness and justification, that seated him at God's right hand in the heavenlies and put everything under his feet, it is toward you. It's for you. It's at work in you. I'm telling you, when that penny begins to drop for you, and I pray that I'm just going to keep talking, and at some point I'm going to say something and God's going to use it, and the penny's going to drop for you because that is the best news you are going to hear all morning. The Almighty is for you. He demonstrated it in sending his son to die for your sin. He is for you. But the power that raised him from the dead, it's alive and at work in you and towards you. It doesn't get better than that. This morning, if you're here, and, and I talk about God being for you, and I, and I talk about the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, being alive and at work in you and towards you, and you're sitting there going, I'm not really sure I know anything of this love for me and of this power towards me. I, I need you to understand that the only way that you can ever truly come to know the love of God for you and the power of God towards you and in you is by actually believing that his son Jesus did truly die on the cross for your sins. He truly died and he suffered the death that you deserve to die for your sins. He, he really did die. He, he really was buried. But he did not remain in the tomb. By the grace of God and the mercy of God, God's incomparably great power raised his son Jesus from the dead and received his life and his death as a sufficient sacrifice for your sins and he raised him up and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies and has given him all authority and all power over all things. The way to come to know God's love as he's demonstrated through Jesus for you and his power towards you is by believing with all that you are that Jesus really is a sufficient substitute and sacrifice for you. Believe with your whole heart that he is truly for you. God would call you this morning to believe that his son Jesus was sufficient for you. If you're here this morning and you say, I just, I don't know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about understanding God's love for me in his son. And 
God's love toward me and in me and, and his power. I, I, I'm glad that you're here. And here, here's what I want to tell you this morning. God, God would call you this morning to believe with all that you are upon his son. But someone invited you to come. If you've got questions about this, I want you to, to talk to the person who invited you. Say, help me understand a little bit more about what it means for God to be for me in his son. About the power of God that raised his son from the dead, being alive and at work in me. Help me understand that a little bit more. I'm sure they would want to help you in that. Anyone you've seen up here talking this morning, grab us. Let us know. We would love to help you better understand. And in fact, use the connection card on your guide. Let us know who you are and, and your questions and put it in one of the boxes and we'll get in touch with you. We want you to understand. We want you to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So we're glad that you're here because that is the only way that you can begin to know this love of God for you and this power in you. Do that for me. We would love to help you with that. And we can't just stop and end with the magnitude of God's power. We can't just stop it and end with the magnitude of God's inexhaustibly, incomparably great power being towards those who believe. Because if we put a period right there and we move on, we walk out of this place standing at very high risk of going off the rails. When we begin to contemplate this incomparably, very real, great power that is God's towards us who believe and at work in us who believe, we best understand what that power is for. Because if we don't understand what that's power, that power is for, we can get into the weeds really quick. We don't have the time, nor would it even be respectable and appropriate to go into all the various propositions that people have made throughout the years and continue to make today about what this incomparably great power is for in the life of a Christian. It wouldn't be respectful and we don't have time for it. But if I was to sum up all the varied ways that the church at large has tried to talk about what this power is for that might get at the truth but yet leave a lot of things out, you could sum it up in one phrase that everyone in this room is familiar with. And I say it with all sincerity. And I, I, again, you got to hear me. I'm not saying this in jest at all. The majority of the church today would say that this incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that is alive and at work in us and towards us, is for us having our best life now. I don't say it in jest. I want you to listen to me. What if that saying is actually partially right? Again, what if it's partially right? What if this incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that's alive and at work in his people and towards his people and for his people does about bring the, the best life that God has for us now? The problem is defining what that life looks like. And this is where people get into the weeds. This is where we tend to close our Bible and start talking about the power. And the power is real, but God didn't leave us to figure out what it's for on our own. I want you to listen. Again, this is why it's a little bit different than other Sundays. I'm going to go to a few places in the Bible here. And I just want you to hear where the Apostle Paul continually goes with this power for God's people. Nearly every letter the Apostle Paul writes to a specific church, he talks about this incomparably great power that is towards God's people and what it's for. Because we keep getting it wrong. We keep trying to use it for our own ends and our own means. But what if we can really have the best life that we can have now by the power of this God who raised his son from the dead. What would it look like? Let's start in Philippians chapter three. It won't come up. I just want you to listen. You can write it down. Philippians three, chapter, chapter three, verse 10. 
I'm reading from the Holman Standard Version because I like the way it translates this particular verse, but Paul says this, my goal is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. There it is, right there. Know Christ and the power of his resurrection. We've all memorized that. But Paul goes on. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that I may know the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed into his death. I want to know him and his incomparably great power towards me that I might share in the fellowship of his sufferings. He's got to write a letter to the church in Colossae He's going to talk to them about this too. Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul is again praying for the church. He's writing them a letter. He's going to pray for them in the beginning of the letter. And this is what he says. May you be strengthened with all power according to his, talking about God's glorious might. And we spent all morning talking about the magnitude of God's power and his glorious might, right? The power that flung the universe into creation. That is upholding every subnuclear particle and raised Jesus from the dead. Paul says, I'm praying that you would be strengthened with all power according by the measure of God's glorious might. We memorize it and we go on. That's not the end of the verse. Paul says, for, here's why I want you to know the incomparably great power of God towards you for all endurance and patience with joy. I want you to know the incomparably, inexhaustible, great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that is alive and at work towards you and in you who believe that you might endure hard things, that you might, that you might have patience for hard people with joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he has to write four letters to the church in Corinth. We only get two of them. They're probably more like us than anybody. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, be sure of this. Jesus was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him. Now, let me just tell you this. That's next week. Weakness gives its entire week next week. You can't talk about the resurrection life and not talk about weakness. So we do that next week. But Paul says, likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him. Put a period there and go on. That's not what Paul does. Paul continues that thought. We are weak in Christ, yet by God's power, power we've been talking about, we will live with him to serve you. Best translation of that verse. To serve you. Incomparably great, inexhaustible power that raised Jesus from the dead, alive and at work towards and in those who believe that you might serve others. Makes every selfish, arrogant hair on my neck stand up when I read it. Because it means God's incomparably great power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive and at work in me that I might begin to die to my own preferences, my own schedule, my own priorities, that I might serve those that I'm going to need the same incomparably great power to endure and be patient with and be happy about it. That's what it's for. 
And that incomparably great power is at work in us so that we look at those situations and say, I don't have what it takes. Well, the incomparably great power at work in you that raised Jesus from the dead has got all that you need. We'll get to that in a minute. Paul's not done. He's writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We love the first part. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Everybody memorize that verse early on. First one you go memorize. You memorize that one. Nobody memorizes verse 8. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but... Memorize this one for next week. But share in suffering for the gospel by. That is the means by which you can share. That means relying upon. Share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. In all of my years as an adult Christian and as a minister of the gospel, no one has ever sent me an invitation to a conference about that. It's funny, it's true. No one's ever said, let's divest our resources and our time and our energy to get as many people together as we can so that we can encourage one another to share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. That doesn't fill up stadiums. It doesn't sell tickets. A biblical snapshot of your best life now by the incomparably great power of God that raised Jesus from the dead that is alive and at work towards you who believe is a life that knows the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. A life that endures and is patient with joy as it serves others. We have this incomparably great resurrection power for us in this life that we might share and suffering for the sake of the gospel as we rely on that power. Love and service, endurance, patience, suffering with joy, that's not the language of triumphalism. That's not the language, that's not the modern language of victory. But it is the vocabulary of the resurrected life. God's incomparably, immeasurably, inexhaustible great power that raised Jesus from the dead that is alive and at work in you and towards you as you believe is for this, that you might be like Christ in his death, that you might have all power to be weak, all power to endure, all power to suffer. Somebody invite me to that conference. See, it's precisely in these things. It's in this kind of endurance and this kind of patience with joy. It's in this kind of willingness to serve and this kind of willingness to be identified with Christ and share in the sufferings of the gospel. It's in that kind of life that the world can visibly, visibly see our willingness to take up our cross and follow Christ. How do you know that the resurrection power of Jesus is alive and at work in somebody? You see that. People could say anything. I could say anything. The only way you can begin to to see the resurrected power of Christ at work in people is through a life lived like this. 
Jesus, he told his disciples, Mark chapter 8. We're not going to get too far away from Mark quite yet. Mark chapter 8, he, he gathered everybody around him and he said, if anyone is going to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In fact, Jesus goes a little bit further. Luke chapter 14, Luke records for us that Jesus says, anyone who does not carry his cross, anyone who's, who's not willing to deny himself and take up his cross, anyone who seeks to save his life, he can't be my disciple. Why spend extra time after Easter talking about the reverberating power of the resurrection in the life of God's people? Because when we call you to follow Jesus, and when Jesus calls you to be his disciple, he's calling you to die. He's calling you to die. And for some, he may be calling you to a very literal death, to share very literal in his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. The majority in here you're probably not going to be martyred in Richmond for telling other people about Jesus. But, but don't miss the fact that God, in his mercy and in his kindness, has brought to this city, to the university just down the street, the second largest number of Saudi and Arab exchange students in America. And as he has brought them to our place, and as we will be willing to follow him and begin to share his grace and his mercy with them, for them to take up their cross and follow Jesus means something very real. There are very dire consequences awaiting them for making a decision like this. Why talk about the reverberating power of the resurrection for God's people right now? Because the call to follow Jesus for you and I, for every person in here, is a call to die. It's a call to die to your pride as you learn to trust him in your weakness. It's a call to die to your selfishness as you learn to serve others the way he served you. It's a call not just for those who stand up here or who get paid to do what you think a Christian is supposed to do. It's a call to everybody who would follow Jesus. And it's a call that exists day in and day out. That's why you won't hear any better news this morning than the fact that God has given to those who believe his immeasurably great power. Because now, when you think about what it means to pick up your cross and to follow him on a day in and day out basis. When you think about what it means to endure difficult things and be patient with difficult people with all joy, to, to love them and serve them the way that he served you. When you think about what it might mean to share in his sufferings for the sake of the gospel. When you think about all that that might mean, you can now realize that your capacity and your potential to do the very thing he's called you to do is no longer measured by your intellect, by how much you have read, by your own personal tenacity, by whether or not you're a gritty person who will just white-knuckle everything, your capacity to live the life he has called you to live, to live a resurrected life of carrying your cross daily is measured now by the incomparably great power of God at work towards you and in you. That's the measure of your potential. He has given you not just information that you need to know to do what he's called you to do. He has given you his incomparably, inexhaustible, great power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is towards you and it is in you, alive and at work to be who he's called you to be.
The resurrection, it's not just a, an event that occurred in, in time that we can look towards and, and see the magnitude of, of God's grace for us. It's that, but it's so much more. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's guarantee that that same incomparably great power that raised him from the dead is at work in us and towards us. And this morning, it's, it's that love of God towards us and that power of God for us that we have the opportunity to celebrate and to proclaim as we who believe in Christ receive communion this morning. As the musicians come up and, and get prepared, I, I want you, as you prepare yourself to respond to God's word, to hear this, God is for you. He declared the depths of his love for you when he sent his only son to be crucified on the cross. As you come forward this morning and you pick up that piece of bread and you remember and you hear someone say the body of Christ broken for you and you dip it in that chalice of juice and you hear the blood of Christ for you for the forgiveness of your sins, the, the cleansing of your soul and of your conscience, hear God declare publicly that he is for you. And here this morning as you do that, he's He's alive. And the incomparably great power of God that raised him from the dead, it's alive and at work towards you and in you. He is for you. You are forgiven. You, you are made right before God. I am for you. Hear him say it. I am for you. And my power, the same power that raised my son from the dead, it's towards you. This morning, as you come forward to receive communion, you, you are publicly declaring that your confidence this morning is not in you. You're, you're preaching when you come forward to yourself and to everyone here. Your confidence is no longer in you, but as Paul told the church in Corinth, it's in God who raises the dead. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond this morning. Father, you know what has to happen in every heart this morning for us to stand up with a a confidence that's no longer in who we are, how smart we are, what kind of things we can do this morning. Lord, you need to do what only you can do to help us see the sufficiency and the magnitude of your love towards us and your son. Help us to see the reality of your power towards us, the power that raised him from the dead. Let us not walk out of here this morning the way we walked in. We ask that you would do this for his glory, for, for our joy. We ask it in his name. Amen.